Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Genesis of Startups, where we interview brilliant minds in entrepreneurship to explore what it's really like to start a business. Our guest today is Paul Towers, founder of TaskPigeon, a task management software that helps teams track and collaborate more easily. Paul is immensely well-informed of the international startup scene, tools and products, available to synthesize and automate a startup business. He is an avid supporter of the Australian entrepreneurial ecosystem, having started and created a successful Startup Soda newsletter, read by thousands of startup founders every week, and is a mentor at the University of Sydney Genesis program. Welcome to the show, Paul. Thanks very much for having me, Will. Glad to be here. So could you tell us a bit about yourself and what you're currently doing? Yeah, definitely. So I guess like my entrepreneurial story goes back a a fair way now, actually all the way back when I was 16 and that was 15 years ago for those keeping track. So (laughs) quite some time where I actually purchased my first business, which was a a retail surf shop. And so I had a retail business while I was still in high school and had a couple of staff who worked for me during the week. And then on the weekends, I'd managed the business. And since then, I've always been involved in one stream or another of startups or entrepreneurship in general, despite also going on to have roles in in the corporate world. So after that business, the retail service shop, which I had for about three years, I did what a lot of people do and went to university and studied, in my case, property economics, and then worked in the property industry for a little bit of time before Mm. going on to found another business, which was in the services industry. Also ran that for three years. And then after that, I really wanted to get a lot close to the technology side of things, tech startups, and be more involved in that area of the economy, just because obviously there's a lot of advantages that come from working or being involved in the tech ecosystem, one of which is you know the fast-paced nature and the ability to identify problems that can be solved through software or associated tech. At the time, though, I wasn't technical person. You know, I, I didn't know how to code or anything like that. So the closest skill set I had was sales. So for the past probably about seven or so years, I've actually worked in in sales for a couple of different software companies. But at the same time, we've had kind of like, I guess, uh, if you like, side projects that I've been working on and launched and developed. So the main startup has been TaskPigeon, which as you uh, pointed out in the intro is a task management application. I've had that for about three years now. And I, I guess like when we talk about the fact that I mentor at Genesis and also, you know, often talk with startup founders outside of that, I guess one of the things that I see where I can add a lot of value is talking to those founders who are also non-technical, you know, and how do you approach creating an MVP or validating an idea when you might not have the, the skills to build the, the product yourself. And then I guess the, the final piece of that puzzle as well that you mentioned was Startup Soda. So that actually started a little bit before Task Pigeon and it was really about my way of trying to highlight some of the stories in the Australian startup ecosystem. So it originally started as a daily newsletter where I kind of summarized the top 10 articles from across the the ecosystem. And in particular, I like to highlight stories that were direct from the founder or direct from, you know, early stage employees where they might have written a medium post or put something on LinkedIn and shared that firsthand account. Over the last kind of six months, unfortunately, that's now become more of like a a weekly or a fortnightly newsletter just because of my full-time role in sales. I just did have to cut back on that. But it's probably one of the best things that I've ever done because it did allow me to become a lot more connected with the startup ecosystem and meet people I, I never expected that I that I would have met um, when I first kind of embarked on this this whole journey to get closer to the tech scene. Yeah, definitely. You know, by 
doing these newsletters about different startup founders and their companies, it seems like a great way to get to know the ecosystem and see what sort of startups are out there. 100%. So, Paul, what you mentioned earlier about you not having a particular tech background, but you started Task Pigeon, which is obviously a software company. How did you get around with that? Well, I mean, you mentioned that you had sales. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, you know, with, regardless of whether or not you're someone who can code or, or have tech background yourself or not, you know, the biggest thing obviously is to validate the idea. You know, and I was aware, obviously, going in like a task management application, there's a lot of different tools that do that. But I wanted to see if there was a, a gap in the market that kind of matched my thought process and what I wanted to see in a task management tool because I'd used a heap myself and I hadn't found the one that worked for me. So I did a lot of pre-launch testing, you know, things such as, you know, just landing page that I could throw up myself, I think probably using WordPress at the time just to be able to market the idea. And then I reached out to people through various channels, um, LinkedIn, there used to be some sites back in the day where you could like post ideas of, of startups or ideas that you had and you'd get some people who'd like submit their email address to be kept in touch. And I probably connected with about 100, 150 people and I interviewed probably about 20 of those. And that kind of validated the idea that, you know, there was a little bit of a gap for the market. People seemed to understand and appreciate the, the way I wanted to approach solving the issue of managing tasks as an individual or within a team. I often, when I mentor people, I, I'm, you know, I say to them, at some point you do have to pull the trigger, right? And you either have to invest the time or the money to create something. So for mm. me, like that process was about, you know, how can I get enough validation that I'm comfortable making an investment to get to an MVP? And from that research phase, you know, I reached that point and very much went the MVP approach. You know, I think the the struggle or the challenge that a lot of people have is like you have this grand idea, but how do you distill it down to just have the core functionality that's enough to solve the next piece of the puzzle or give you enough validation to keep going? So I actually mm. found a developer, freelance developer in Canada, and he built the MVP for me. And then we launched in about six weeks. Wow. Yeah. So the whole idea is because you had no technical background, First and foremost, you had to figure out whether this is something that the market wanted. And what you did was just a smoke test. You set up a landing page, collected emails, asked people or potential customers. And then once you got that sort of validation from the market, then you went ahead to create the MVP and you just assigned a freelancer to do that for you. Yeah, definitely. And I think on the on the like pre-launch validation thing, the, the biggest takeaway or the biggest thing to understand is that the value of someone paying is like a hundred times more important than getting the email, right? So as part of that validation process, I actually asked people to prepay and wow. uh, I didn't convert too many, but, you know, I did have a handful of customers who actually paid for a license in advance. And, you know, that's, that's not something that's always easy to do or easy to ask for. But, you know, often I see, it was a while ago, there used to be like one of these landing page software creators, I can't remember which one it was at the time, but they had this case study about Harry's, the Razor company, saying how they had 100,000 you know, email signups before they launched. And I remember I was talking at Genesis once and I was talking to this you know, student who was looking to start a company and he was like, you know, I've seen these case studies and they have hundreds of thousands of people before they even launch. Like, how am I ever going to get to that? And what I pointed out was that that case study that these landing page companies kind of led with for their own marketing, they didn't give the full context of the story. Because the person who founded Harry's was actually a previous co-founder of another startup, the name escapes me, and they'd recently like exited the business for like $100 million or something. So this guy already had a bunch of money to invest in marketing to get those leads, 
to get those pre-launch signups. And then like here I was talking to a student who was trying to compare himself to that person. So the way I kind of boiled it down is, you know, very much like what I said earlier is what do you need to see to validate it yourself and to be comfortable making that investment? For some people, that might be interviewing 100 people and having 10 of them say yes. For someone with a different risk tolerance, they might need to interview 200 people or see 300 email signups or whatever it is, right? So it's basically, you know, like when you think about validation and and what that looks like, there isn't always a one-size-fits-all approach, but there's these kind of general themes that I recommend you follow. Absolutely. In terms of getting email signups is one, but more importantly, can you get anyone to, to pay in advance? I mean, to go back to what you said about it's not one-size-fits-all, then I mean, it seems like sort of a subjective, arbitrary line. Where do you draw the line where you consider that validation? 100%. It's a very good question. And it's something that I often say, like even in my sales role, like numbers without context can sometimes be mean, you know, a bit misleading, right? So if you were approaching me or I was interviewing or helping someone who was Genesis and they're looking to start a company or start a startup and they were a software developer, And they said to me, hey, look, for me to build this MVP, it's like a week's worth of my investment. That's Mm. going to be a very different conversation than if I'm talking to a non-technical person who's like, hey, if I proceed with this idea, I need to spend at least $10,000 to find a freelancer to build this, right? So for that person who's a developer and can do it themselves, I might recommend, hey, look, you know, just like validate the idea, make sure that it, it seems all right. And if it's only going to take you a week to build the MVP, just jump in and do that. On the other flip side, you know, that person who has to invest their own money or even if they were a developer and it's like, hey, for me to build the MVP is going to take nine months because I can only do it every Sunday. Again, that would be a different conversation. So, yeah, I know that's probably not the straight answer that everyone's hoping for, but really it's about understanding who you are as a person and what risk tolerance you're happy taking and then finding the shortest path possible to making sure you're comfortable taking that first step to get an MVP out the door. Yeah, it's just basically an individual cost-benefit analysis. How long is it going to take you? How much is it going to cost you? Yeah, that's a, a great summary. Uh, couldn't have said it better <laughs> myself. <laughs> it's almost the same as, as a Kickstarter campaign or a crowdfunding campaign, but this is just sort of, a, I guess, a manual process where you go out there and ask yourself. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think crowdfunding campaigns are definitely valuable if your product fits kind of the the criteria and some of the you know if you look at like kickstarter and that obviously it's typically a hardware product associated with it or i know they do campaigns for like movie projects and indie games but you know it's it's not necessarily like a software as a service type platform so if you fit within the definition of one of these pre-launch kind of kickstarter campaigns definitely agree that that's a, a route worth exploring the one thing though that kind of has changed over the last probably five to eight years is that the requirements for some of those platforms has got a lot more stringent. So I remember Mm. back in the day when Kickstarter launched, it was basically like, hey, people would put up some 3D rendered drawings and and the concept and say, hey, we're going to go build whatever it is. And they would get backers and then hopefully, you know, convert that to a product. And there was a couple of kind of high profile failures that popped up over the years where the company might have sold the product for $100 or whatever to these pre-launch backers. And then as they kind of went down the product development process, realized it was going to be more expensive to create or make than they anticipated and they, they collapsed. So nowadays on like Kickstarter in particular, there's like this higher barrier to entry. You need to make sure that you kind of at least have a prototype, I believe. 
not mm. next, but on the topic. But so if you're then thinking of that, the question would be like, what validation can you do before you even get to a Kickstarter as well? And with a hardware product, you know, obviously it's going to take some some investment of, of time and money as well. But again, it's still about making sure you're comfortable enough to then say, yep, we're going to invest further and invest enough so that we can meet the requirements of Kickstarter to launch on their platform. Hmm, absolutely. What inspired you to take the plunge with Task Pigeon? Yeah, look, I guess like my life is probably a little bit different to most people my age. So I think the average age that people get married in Australia is like 30 or 31 for, for men, at least. <clears throat> so I got married when I was 21. I have three kids now and the oldest of which is six. So, you know, I kind of at that point in my life where I was looking to get more into the tech side of things, you know, still had family, mortgage and all that. So, you know, I did need the security of a full-time job. But at the same token, I I'd never wanted to let go of my entrepreneurial kind of mindset or, you know, interest in that field. So that was really why I decided, to, you know, to keep pursuing my passions. And it wasn't really that, you know, I wanted to launch a, a task management app in particular, like that I wasn't searching for ideas per se. It was just, you know, you reflect on the problems that you're having in, in your life, your work life, and you try and find solutions for them. So just like with Startup Soda, I was like, hey, there's not this like handy way just to kind of see what's happening in the ecosystem. I'll create the newsletter. And then by the same token with Task Pigeon, I was kind of in my corporate sales role trying to manage all the day-to-day tasks that I had and was thinking like, what tool should I use? And I was trying, you know, all these different options, you know, Trello, Asana, et cetera, and they kind of didn't just meet my needs. So that's mm-hmm. kind of the the genesis of the idea to create my own task management application and go from there. Yeah, absolutely. I know a struggle that I've had with my own startup. Sometimes when I have knowledge gaps is when I hire contractors. It's quite difficult to assess performance just because I have no knowledge of what they're doing. Yeah, 100%. And my thought process on this has changed a lot. One of the things that I've I've done when I was building Task Pigeon and even earlier, I used to write a lot of blog posts just kind of sharing the journey because one of the other things I, I find is often once a startup is successful, the story basically is written retroactively or retrospectively. And, you know, it makes it sound like it was all, you know, everything was going up and to the right all the time. So I kind of wanted to write these blog posts in the moment and share some of that insight. So, you know, I certainly had my struggles hiring developers. The first Canadian developer that I had, uh, he was great for the MVP, but then he decided to go and try and pursue a job in Silicon Valley and I had to change teams and I, I switched to some freelance contractors that I found from Upwork. And again, they were great, but it was a And I guess I kind of had like a semi-technical mind at that point in my life. You know, I've always been interested in understanding how things work. So I very much approached it in a methodical manner, you know, making sure that they had the skills that they said, giving them a test project to make sure that they could deliver, paying someone who was actually in Sydney at the time to just kind of review their code that they'd written and help me advise me. So it wasn't just going into it blind. But by the Mm. same token, I've had a lot of conversations with other startup founders, not only through Genesis, but just, you know, people who reach out to me in general and say, hey, I'd love to chat. And unfortunately, there's there's countless stories where people spend, you know, 20, 30, 50. I even had someone who said they spent $500,000 and hadn't got their product to market. Now, it's an extreme wow. case. But, you know, a lot of the time, you know, that, that kind of 20 to 100K mark, there's a lot of people who have spent money and haven't managed to get there. So the one thing I would say is if you're a non-technical person, at the very least, find someone in your community 
who you can meet face to face and can talk to almost like a peer or a friend, you know, go to meetups, find someone and say, Hey, look, I know I can't pay you to develop the application, but could I have, you know, eight hours of your time and and I'll pay you for it. And I want you to help me find a freelancer, you know, help me review their capabilities, help me test and and look at the code that they're producing to make sure I, I make the right decision. And then also when you then proceed to using a freelancer, chunk that that program or project up. Don't just kind of wait for the whole end result. You know, like with Task Pigeon, for example, maybe I could have said like, can you just build the user authentication system and login screens first, right? And mm. I'll pay you dollars X for that and then I'll make sure it's all good before you go on to build the rest of the application. Now, I did mention that my kind of thought process has changed over that time. I believe that you can be a non-technical founder of a startup that becomes successful however your chances of success are less that's just a fact and you know i just i just firmly believe that now so over the last few years i've started to transition from being a non-technical founder to being someone who can do that myself i might not ever get to the process of being able to build an end-to-end application but i at least understand how it all goes together and, and what it looks like and can do you know, a fair bit of it myself. So, you know, I've been studying everything from UI and UX design right through to web development. I've been focusing primarily on uh, using React just because obviously there's a, a lot of resources out there on how to use React as your front-end framework of choice. And then like Task Pigeon, that's built on the mean stack. So MongoDB, Express, Angular, and Node.js. So I guess if I was to rebuild Task Pigeon again, I, I'd swap out Angular for React. But yeah, that's, a, I guess, a little bit of context to my thought process around non-tech founders versus tech founders. Yeah, I understand the process. So the whole idea is first to go local. And then when you're going to look for that contractor, see if there's anyone in your network who's able to screen or help you screen this contractor. And from there, you know, it's not about just waiting for the end product from this contractor, but to allocate stages where, you know, as you mentioned, build this first and then before we move on to the next stage. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, ideally as well, I mean, you might have a tech co-founder that you know, uh, or some, not, they're not your co-founder yet, but someone who who is a, a developer who you know and you can approach them because often people say, hey, I don't have the money to pay someone to do it. You know, how do I find a tech co-founder? And the thing I'll say about that is that, you know, if you're a developer, ideas are easy, right? Everyone's running around with an idea saying, hey, can you help me build this? And, and that's not very valuable to a developer. But if you could go to them and say, hey, look, I've done all this research, I've done all this validation, and I pre-sold 10 licenses for this idea. Do you want to help me build it? That's going to be heaps more valuable, right? Because they're like, well, wow, you know, this person, this guy, this girl's kind of done some research, validated the idea. They've already got some business. So maybe it is worth my trouble jumping into this as a co-founder. And even if you don't find a co-founder initially and you do decide to go the contractor route, I don't think that excludes you getting a co-founder later on. You could pay like a contractor to build the MVP and then let's say you use that MVP to get like your monthly reoccurring revenue up to like 500 or a thousand bucks. And then you could try and find a co-founder locally, you know, someone mm. who you trust as well and say, look, you know, here's what I've done. Here's where I've taken the idea. If I can bring a co-founder on board now, you know, and have that tech skill in-house, we're just going to accelerate. So so that's something that I, I recommend people kind of keep in the back of their mind. Absolutely. Lastly, what are some struggles that you've had with Task Pigeon? I mean, part of it obviously is the fact that I, I'm non-technical founder, at least was not a technical founder initially. And it just, 
the biggest struggle, I guess, is like when someone tells you something, how do you make sure or how do you know what they're saying is true and makes sense? And, you know, if they say it's going to take six weeks to do something, is that realistic? You know, if a bug occurs in the, the application. So I think probably talking about that one, some of the frustrating times have been like early on in the process when we had launched, we did have live customers and then like a bug would take the website or the application down for like, you know, three, four, five hours. And I'm someone who's obsessed with customer experience and I'm sitting there like, this just isn't good enough. You know, how do we get this fixed? But sometimes if you're using contract developers, they're obviously like one step removed. So it's not as big a priority for them. And like, oh yeah, we'll fix it kind of thing. It's like, well, hey, like I need it kind of fixed now and not in like four or five hours time. So that was a challenge. One of the contractor, te- one of the contractor teams that I used once my developer in Canada moved on, they were based in Armenia. This was a few years back, but there were some protests in the region and they decided not to work for a week because they wanted to kind of support democracy and get out there and protest. Mm-hmm. And 100% agree with the right to protest. And, and I think it was great that they wanted to be so involved in their country's future and everything. But you know, there's some just kind of left of field things that you might need to be aware of, right? Like if you're working with people in the other side of the world, geopolitical situations can change that make things tough, right? In terms of like the kind of getting more back into the weeds of the the startup and stuff and some other challenges, you know, I guess with TaskPigeon, it's a freemium product. So there's a free tier and then a paid tier. So like, now I'm very comfortable kind of knowing our go-to-market strategy. It's largely content marketing based and then we want to kind of support people in their initial trial and try and increase the conversion rate. But, you know, if I was looking at, at products again, you know, there's certainly, I think there's a lot of value in having a freemium product, but at the same time, don't make the freemium product too good that you then kind of shoot yourself in the foot and, and limit the the number of reasons why someone would upgrade to a paid tier. And also I'd say, you know, if your product does provide enough value straight out of the box, then don't be afraid to charge for it, right? Especially if your your application does something that's directly tied to revenue generation. So like, as I said, I work in sales. If you sell a tool to a salesperson, they're using that to make money. So you should Mm. also make money as well. Make sure you charge accordingly. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Paul, thank you so much for being a guest today on the Genesis of Startups. No worries at all. Really appreciate it. And uh, thanks for having me on. It was incredibly valuable having you talk about what to do if you found a technical company without a technical background. To our audience, if you'd like to learn more about Paul or about the genesis of startups, feel free to drop us a line on LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter. Until next time.